Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the audio edition of the Weekly Roundup, where we take a look at some of the top headlines and developments that pertain to the asset and wealth management industry across Singapore, Hong Kong, and mainland China. This episode, we are looking at events and developments that occurred over the week of June 20 through 24 in 2022. So let's dive in. Starting off with a look across Asia Pacific, Nikkei Asia reports that, following a strong start to the year, initial public offerings in APEC are slowing, though not as much as in other regions. Whilst proceeds over the first quarter of 2022 were 18% higher than the same period last year, the second quarter of the year has seen a 26% drop from the previous period, bringing proceeds of 50.5 billion US dollars across 356 listings, which were down 31% from 2021, according to data from Dealogic, a financial markets data platform. Globally, IPOs are currently at 53% of 2021 levels, with proceeds down 72%, with Europe and the United States each having one of the top 10 IPOs for the year, and Asia taking the rest. With firms across the world taking a wait-and-see approach, industry analysts expect Asia's financial centers, such as Hong Kong, to see a, quote, sharp decline in the number of new listings and proceeds, end quote. A global audit firm has slashed the forecast for primary listings in Hong Kong over 2022, as covered in previous episodes, and expects the amount raised from primary listings to be around 23 billion US dollars, half of what was expected at the beginning of the year. The same firm expects things to turn around in the second half of 2022, projecting at least three 10 billion Hong Kong dollar listings and six in the five to 10 billion Hong Kong dollar range. Already, primary listings in the Fragrant Harbor are down 53% from 2021, with 22 such listings raising 17 billion Hong Kong dollars a far cry from 2019, when the Special Administrative Region was the world's leading IPO destination. Other APAC centers are stepping up, though, with the Shanghai Exchange listing 680 firms and raising 32.4 billion US dollars. Shanghai's Star Market, a science and technology innovation bourse, taking the lead in terms of total fundraising, seeing 14.37 billion US dollars raised across 46 listings as of 15 June 2022, though this is down 44% from 2021. New York's NASDAQ came second with 12.61 billion US dollars raised across 98 listings and Shenzhen's Chinext Bourse, a high-tech-focused board, rounding out the top three, 
with 12.56 billion US dollars raised across 63 listings. In aggregate, mainland Chinese bourses have raised circa 35 billion US dollars, up 7% from last year, whilst USA exchanges have raised less than half of that at 16 billion US dollars. In addition to the Next and Chinext bourses, the Beijing exchange launched in November 2021 and focusing on SMEs, recently listed its 100th entity and over 5 million accounts had been opened as of 20 June. As global IPOs have declined 80% since 2021, whether China continues to pull ahead and which foreign exchanges Chinese firms list on will be watched with avid interest. And now on to Singapore. Bloomberg reports that BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, is preparing a significant expansion of its presence in Singapore, one that will see staff relocated from Hong Kong as it looks to tap into growing capital flows across Southeast Asia. BlackRock is reportedly looking to double its current floor space, going from three floors of office space to six, adding dozens of roles, including at least 10 relocations from Hong Kong, though planning is currently in the early stages. In a statement, BlackRock noted that, quote, Asia Pacific is one of BlackRock's key growth engines, end quote, and that they were, quote, expanding our footprint to match our ambitions and will continue to increase resources, particularly in Southeast Asia and Greater China, to capture growth areas, including exchange-traded funds and indexing, alternatives, and sustainable investing, end quote. Moving on, the asset reports that Singapore has granted in-principle approvals to three more fintech companies offering digital payment tokens in the city-state, with Crypto.com, Genesis, and Sparrow Tech reportedly the three recipients. The three joined the other 11 digital payment token providers granted licenses by MAS, Singapore's financial regulator and central bank, over the last two years. As of end May 2022, MAS had received 196 applications for such licenses. Singapore's Deputy Prime Minister, Mr. Hung Sui Kiet, announced the licenses at the Point Zero Forum, a crypto gathering in Switzerland. During the announcement, Mr. Hung stated that Singapore was, quote, committed to partner innovative and responsible players to grow the Web 3.0 ecosystem and community in Singapore, end quote. He further added that Singapore would, quote, facilitate live experiments through regulatory sandboxes, including testing the feasibility of decentralized finance and asset tokenization, end quote. Concurrent to this ambition, Singapore also promises to be, quote, brutal and unrelentingly hard, end quote, on bad behavior in the crypto industry, as stated by the chief fintech officer at the MAS. Further, 
the representative stated that Singapore could expect a state-backed alternative, presumably a central bank digital currency, would be made available within three years. The recent market meltdown of cryptocurrencies appears to have hardened the hearts of regulators in the Lion City, which initially appeared to be friendly towards crypto firms and exchanges, before starting to implement increasingly restrictive rules and regulations regarding their operation, causing several to withdraw applications for licenses or leave the city-state entirely. The comments came as South Korean regulators pursued Terraform Labs, a Singapore-based company behind the alleged stablecoin known as TerraUSD and its twin token, Luna, the latter of which recently plunged, causing a 40 billion US dollar wipeout among investors, including myself. Subsequently, Singapore has enacted, quote, painfully slow, end quote, and, quote, extremely draconian, end quote, due diligence processes for the licensing of crypto businesses. Despite this, one crypto trading platform received in-principle approval to operate this week, though the long-term future of the industry remains uncertain. Next up, CityWire Asia reports that ADDX, a Singapore private market exchange, has partnered with China Construction Bank, a Chinese state-owned bank, to allow mainland Chinese investors the opportunity to buy offshore assets via the QDLP cross-border program. The two institutions have signed an MOU regarding the custody and distribution of 200 million US dollars in QDLP quota, under which China Construction Bank would be appointed as custodian for the investments made via the iCham fund. The iCham fund was formed in 2021, when the Singapore-regulated multifamily office iCham received a QDLP quota allocation of 200 million US dollars from the Chongqing government, part of its aggregate 5 billion US dollars in QDLP allocation. Concurrently, ADDX received an agreement to be the primary mechanism to facilitate mainland Chinese investments via the iCham fund. The agreement with CCB will allow for China Construction Bank's Chongqing branch to sell fund units to its qualifying clients. Investments offered via ADDX include private equity funds, venture capital funds, real estate funds, and hedge funds, among others. Moving on, Singapore's Deputy Prime Minister has stated that greenwashing the practice of conveying a false impression or misleading information about the environmental soundness of products is, quote, becoming the bane of global financial systems, end quote, and that, quote, the magnitude of greenwashing is concerning, end quote, as per a release from MAS. The comments were made in a recorded message for the Point Zero Forum held in Zurich. The Deputy Prime Minister then went on to warn attendees that if the greenwashing problem was not addressed, then an erosion of confidence in ESG products 
could affect financial stability. To combat this, Mr. Heng noted that regulators across the globe were putting legal frameworks against greenwashing in place to better underpin enforcement actions, and cited a role for fintech to assist, further noting that, quote, the twin forces of digital and green will propel finance in a fundamental way in years to come, end quote. The comments come after Morningstar, a data provider, culled over 1,200 funds from its list of sustainable funds following closer examination of the documentation and follows greater regulatory enforcement action being taken among asset managers engaging in greenwashing, as is the case with Deutsche Wealth Service employees, as stated in an earlier episode. Mr. Hang also announced the launch of an ESG impact fund in Singapore, something designed to, quote, strengthen collaboration and fuel the fast-growing sustainability ecosystem, end quote, by bringing together green fintechs, VC firms, financial institutions, nonprofit organizations, and family offices. How this hub impacts investor concerns around greenwashing and other factors in ESG remains to be seen. And moving up to Hong Kong, Ignites Asia reports, citing data from the Hong Kong Investment Funds Association, an industry organization representing the fund management industry of Hong Kong, that monthly outflows of ESG products in April this year amounted to 15.8 million US dollars, the highest recorded level of outflows. Further, some asset managers in the territory report that clients are asking more questions regarding greenwashing as various scandals seize headline space. The April outflows from the 47 ESG funds sold in Hong Kong exceed the 10.8 million US dollars in net outflows reported in February this year, which were followed by net inflows in March. The decline in ESG flows stands in contrast to the wider fund industry, which saw net inflows of 451 million US dollars following net outflows of 1.1 billion US dollars in March. ESG funds had generally seen positive inflows, with 13 of the last 15 months prior to April recording such. The uptake of ESG funds in the special administrative region has not been as strong as perhaps initially thought, with the reported study from 2021 showing that only circa 40% of investors there being aware of the terms green and sustainable finance. Despite this, the SFC, Hong Kong's Securities and Futures Regulator, has a list of over 120 green and ESG funds, and as of end March, assets in SFC-approved ESG strategies had grown to 142.7 billion US dollars. Whether the continued exposure of ESG and sustainable products continues and dense growth in this segment, or whether it can shrug off investor concerns and continue its growth, will be of interest to a multitude of market players and participants. Next up, Bloomberg reports that 
In an unprecedented move, Beijing's representative office in the territory, the liaison office, has asked foreign business chambers on how to revive the fortunes of Hong Kong following the appointment of its incoming chief executive, Mr. John Lee. Invitations were reportedly sent to chambers of commerce and sought their opinions on how to overcome the challenges afflicting the special administrative region. The overwhelming response to the question was reportedly along the lines of ending quarantine as soon as possible. Beijing has reportedly allocated five major targets for Mr. Li to address during his tenure, one of which was consolidating and improving Hong Kong's international competitiveness, the relaxation or removal of quarantine measures would certainly aid in that. Mr. Lee has stated that he plans to, quote, quickly review, end quote, the quarantine period for incoming travelers, potentially reducing the number of days required to stay at quarantine hotels or allowing for home isolation. Outgoing Chief Executive Ms. Carrie Lam stated she would not, quote, give in a single inch, end quote, to requests to ease quarantine requirements before the end of her term on 30 June. Whether Hong Kong and Beijing heed the recommendations of foreign business leaders in the Fragrant Harbour remains to be seen. And now up to China. The Financial Times reports that, drawn to an aging population in need of private pensions, foreign firms are being drawn to opportunities in China's private pension space. Data from the World Bank indicates that China progressed from an aging society, one in which 7% of the population is aged above 65, to an aged society, one in which 14% of the population is aged above 65 in 25 years. By contrast, Britain, the USA, and France undertook the shift in 45, 69, and 115 years respectively. As of 2021, 14.2% of China's population was aged 65 or older, and Chinese citizens retire at either 50 or 55 years of age. The rapidly aging population is cause for concern among individuals who are concerned when talking about retirement and that their pension and insurance may not keep pace with inflation, whilst China's national leaders are likely concerned by reports that the state-funded pension pillars have been forecast to be bankrupt by 2035, as covered in previous episodes. Private pension products are thus seen as crucial to plugging emerging gaps in pension coverage and giving individuals confidence that they will not outlast their pension savings in retirement. McKinsey, a global management consulting company, forecasts that the private pension market will be worth 10 trillion renminbi by 2030, 5.5 times its size in 2020, when a study by BlackRock and the People's Bank of China indicated that third pillar pension products were in a, quote, nascent stage, end quote. 
with only 2.2 trillion renminbi invested in them. Ms. Charlene Wu, a McKinsey partner, stated, quote, The market consensus is that Pillar 3 will be a major battleground for players competing in the pension market, end quote, and that the, quote, make or break moment for each type of player is whether it can define its value proposition and play to its strengths, end quote. As a result, foreign asset managers are responding to opportunities and demand, something that Chinese regulators are facilitating via various initiatives and schemes. For instance, April 2022 saw authorities unveil initiatives such as taxation incentives to encourage investment in pension products beyond cash and real estate, and a private pension pilot focusing on wealth management products and commercial pension insurance has been expanded from one city to 10. Under the pilot scheme, employees will be able to invest 12,000 renminbi in private pension products annually. These developments, coupled with broader demographic and economic trends, present numerous opportunities to foreign asset managers with experience in private pension products. Ms. Susan Chan, Deputy Head of Asia-Pacific and Greater Head of China, stated that in BlackRock's case, quote, it is definitely the core part of why we are there, end quote, with regards to the country's pension evolution. Further noting that China currently does not have a, quote, long-term investment culture, end quote. BlackRock launched its first private pension product in April 2022. In addition to receiving regulatory approval, for its 100% owned public fund management entity. Manulife, a Canadian insurer, is another example, having been involved in the Pension Fund of Funds initiative since its inception. Mr. Calvin Chu, head of Asia Retirement for Manulife Investment Management, stated that, quote, Manulife has long been a trusted advisor to the government, relevant regulators, and industry bodies on China's retirement system design, end quote. Adding that, quote, Manulife was invited to provide our recommendations on the development and promotion of the third pillar pension framework to the state council, end quote. Fidelity International, an international investment company headquartered in the UK, has been advising the Chinese government and stands ready to increase its product offerings in the Middle Kingdom. Ms. Lily Tsong, Chief Representative in the Beijing Representative Office of Fidelity International, stated that over the years, Fidelity has been, quote, adopting a holistic approach to participate in the development of China's pension system, covering contribution to policy development and driving investor education. End quote. And that they planned to quote, provide professional retirement products and services to the Chinese people. End quote. Invesco, an American investment management firm, will participate via its fund management company joint venture. 
which began introducing pension products in 2019 in anticipation of the program gaining mainstream approval. Renee Kwok, the firm's chief operating officer for Asia, claimed that, quote, this will give us a head start once the program will be officially launched, end quote. Another foreign player, St. James Place, a wealth manager operating in the United Kingdom and across Asia, is also exploring ways to enter the mainland China pension market. With the head of business at St. James's Place Hong Kong, Mr. Matthew Deeprose, claiming that, quote, the growing wealth, the growing population in China, the challenges that population would no doubt face as it ages, it's a very attractive market for us. So we are looking at it very closely, end quote. Various other foreign entities have established a presence in China's pension space over the years, with BlackRock, Standard Life Aberdeen, a UK-based insurance company, and AMP Capital, an Australian headquartered global investment manager, all involved across different pillars and structures. Down in Hong Kong, asset managers are lobbying via the Hong Kong Investment Funds Association for funds raised in China's second and third pillar pension products to be invested with them via pooling into MPF funds. This would reportedly be achieved via a renminbi share class so investors in mainland China could invest and redeem exclusively in renminbi. China is also expected to release four directives on the pension scheme pilot, first announced by the State Council in April this year. These directives will provide guidelines on the overall implementation and formulation of taxation policies for the scheme, how scheme participants can invest in wealth management products and mutual funds, and others. Sichuan province has also stated its intention to join the scheme, with provincial officials stating that they were assembling an application to run the pilot scheme in the province, in which the city and provincial capital of Chengdu is already a participant. Jiangsu, a province neighboring Shanghai, has also reportedly requested to join the pilot scheme, though no cities within the province have currently been selected to participate. Ultimately, the need to implement new pension pillars and initiatives will see the space succeed, as Mr. Peter Alexander, Managing Director at Seaben Advisors, a Shanghai consultancy, and former employer of mine states, quote, We do believe China is going to move forward pretty aggressively with this third pillar private pension plan, simply because they need to. End quote. Next up, Tsai Xin reports, citing data released by CSRC, China's securities regulator, that the dominance of retail investors in China's stock markets continues to wane as institutional investors increase their engagement in markets and as concepts like value, long-term investing, and rational investing grow in acceptance and adoption across market participants. The end of May 2021 saw retail investors' equity trading value 
dropped below 70% for the first time, with institutional and foreign investors holding 22.8% of total outstanding market value, an increase of 6.9 percentage points since 2016. For comparison, retail investors account for circa 10% of total outstanding market value in the USA. In their statement, CSRC also noted that China's stock market had expanded 238.9% over the last decade, with the bond market growing 444.3% over the same period. Each now ranks as the second largest in the world, and there are more than 200 million investors in the stock market. Among financial institutions, total assets held by securities and futures companies has increased five and a half fold over the last decade, and public fund manager holdings have increased eightfold, reaching circa 26 trillion RMB in assets under management. Next up, Bloomberg reports that Ant Group, a Chinese fintech conglomerate, which has been recently under fire from Chinese regulators, is imminently ready to apply for a financial license in order to become a financial holding company, a key step for the entity to move forward as a financial institution following the crushing of its IPO back in 2020 and subsequent regulatory assault. It was reported last week that approval for the license had been granted by regulators, a report which was swiftly disproved by Chinese regulators. The People's Bank of China has reportedly indicated that it would accept Ant Financial's application once submitted, though the subsequent review process would take many months before it was granted, assuming Ant Financial passed all tests and requirements. PBOC has already accepted two of the five firms which have applied for the financial holding company license. Whether Ant Financial joins their ranks remains to be seen. Moving on, Ignites Asia reports that, following confirmation from Chinese regulators that up to 70% of bonuses given to senior executives at public fund managers should be deferred and invested into the asset manager's products in order to curb what has been deemed excessive pay, fund managers may exit the industry in droves. Citing observations from recruitment agencies, who noted that comments on social media regarding the reforms said they were, quote, very drastic, end quote, and, quote, negative, end quote, and some noting that the public fund space would see increased exits to the private fund space or that talent would leave China to pursue their careers elsewhere, as this kind of restriction was, quote, unheard of in the public mutual fund space, end quote, in centers like Hong Kong or Singapore. The recruitment agency noted that base salaries for affected staff could be around 1.5 million RMB annually, and that their bonuses could range from 60 to 80 months of pay, and that throwing money 
at high-performing staff was how public fund managers kept their employees from leaving to private funds. Already, over 100 fund managers had left the industry, including from some of China's top firms and 17 chairs and 15 CEOs of fund management companies have left their roles this year at time of recording. Whether this exodus accelerates remains to be seen. Next up, AMAC, China's fund management industry body and quasi-regulator, has published new instructions for fund managers stating that they need to maintain a good image and adopt further internal controls in order to protect themselves against potential reputational risks. The new rules could lead to additional on- and off-site investigations, along with financial penalties for those found in breach of them. The instructions state that fund houses should, quote, build the relevant reputation, risk management structure, with well-defined roles and responsibilities for the board of directors, the management, different departments, and other affiliated units, end quote. Further, a specific unit, led by a senior manager at the firm, should be designated to handle reputational issues, along with a spokesperson to handle their public image with the media. The regulations come nearly one year after AMEC conducted a closed-door consultation on new guidelines dealing with reputational risks for fund houses, similar to regulations found in China's insurance and banking sectors. The regulations identify 12 areas that asset managers should carefully examine, lest reputational risk and damage arise in them. These areas are changes in ownership, incidents concerning shareholders, sales and marketing plans, internal governance flaws, collaboration with third-party firms, investor complaints, managerial reshuffles, improper speech or conduct of employees, regulatory probes, media coverage, fraudsters posing as the firm, and other concerns. The issue of firms being falsely represented to investors, especially on social media, has been an increasingly common occurrence, with both domestic and foreign firms impacted, as covered in previous episodes. How these new regulations influence their response remains to be seen. Next up, China Fund News reports that Huan Securities, a Chinese securities company, has announced it plans to establish an asset management subsidiary, becoming the 20th securities firm to establish such a subsidiary, with eight of these receiving public fund licenses. In addition to Huan, Guosun Securities and Guolian Securities have also made recent announcements that they plan to set up similar such subsidiaries in order to pursue a public fund license. An additional six firms are having their applications for public fund manager licenses being reviewed by Chinese regulators. Huan's new entity, named Huan Securities Asset Management, 
will have registered capital of 600 million renminbi and will be incorporated in Hefei, the capital of Anhui province. The flurry of securities firms launching asset management firms stems from a change in regulations in 2019, which removed the so-called 1 plus 1 rule, enabling financial institutions to take majority control over more than two entities, subject to some restrictions. In April this year, CSRC proposed a further relaxation of licensing requirements, allowing entities to establish even more public fund entities. And now moving on to China fund news. Chinese fund houses have reportedly been launching products incorporating a lockup period in line with requests from regulators for more medium to long-term investment vehicles in China's fund market. Following an announcement from CSRC in April this year that public fund managers create products which, quote, have a lockup period or cover the lifespan of an investor, end quote, as reported by China Fund News. Equities products with a lockup period have raised over 110 billion renminbi this year, representing 50.3% of new equities fundraising to date, the first time this has happened in China's fund management industry history. The funds usually require investors to hold their investment for between one to three years. Though earlier in June, China AMC applied to launch a balanced fund with a 10-year lockup period, a record if successful. In an attempt to attract investors, BlackRock has slashed subscription fees by 90% for investors who make regular investments to the two retail funds it has launched. It was announced on 16 June that retail investors who subscribed to monthly investment plans between 17 June 2022 and December 2022 could partake in the discounts on subscription fees to the two funds. The offer is only available to those who subscribe via China Construction Bank. The move comes as concerns are raised over China fund managers promoting regular investment plans, citing aspects such as the advantage of dollar cost averaging on fears they run afoul of sales regulations and could potentially mislead investors. As of May this year, a reported 10 million investors have subscribed to regular investment plans. Chinese regulators have told asset managers to treat convertible bonds as equities assets for fixed income plus funds in order to minimize volatility. Fixed income plus funds serve to improve returns by incorporating a small allocation of equities into their asset allocation and have proven to be quite popular in recent times of high volatility. Many are over allocated to convertible bonds, which suffered a sell-off earlier this year prompting regulators to limit their holdings in such funds, restricting them to a maximum of 20%. Despite over 2,100 reported fixed income plus funds in China at time of recording, 
less than 25% of these have reported positive returns over the year. And finally, China Construction Bank has become the first reported major bank in China to allow the purchase of investment products, including mutual funds and wealth management products, in digital renminbi via the bank's app. The bank was reportedly working with third-party fund distributors last year in order to prepare for the adoption of the digital yuan as a means of investment. The service is only available across 11 cities in which the digital renminbi is being piloted and follows Everbright Wealth Management, the wealth management subsidiary of China Everbright Bank, in offering investments via the digital yuan central bank digital currency. So that is it for the week of June 20 through 24 in 2022. From our perspective, we are heartened to see more politicians and regulators taking stock and examining the risks of greenwashing in ESG products. Certainly there have been several very high profile issues around this and the lack of commonality and transparency in standards and across some of the investment products is certainly an issue that we think should be addressed so that allegations of greenwashing can be dealt with and that investors can have confidence that the products they are investing in are actually sustainable, green or ESG compliant to a high level. It was interesting to see that the Chinese authorities in Hong Kong have gone to foreign business chamber leaders for advice and suggestions on how to revive the fortunes of Hong Kong. Certainly, we would hope that any advice that is offered would be listened to, and we would be very, very grateful for any relaxation of quarantine measures, as it has been a while since we were up in the fragrant harbour. And finally, the opportunities that are becoming emergent in China's pension space, particularly in the third pension pillar, are certainly significant. And it is good to see that both regulators are allowing for initiatives and pilot schemes to try new products, and that there is strong interest from foreign asset and investment managers who generally have extensive experience in these private pillar pension products. So hopefully they can gain increased access to China and start marketing and selling their products there. However, those are just our thoughts. Let us know your thoughts in the comments below. If you enjoyed this episode, do give us a like and share with someone else who you think might enjoy it. If you didn't enjoy this episode, thank you very much for sticking around this long. Do let us know what you think we should have covered in the comments below, and we hope you join us next time. From all of us at Three Lions AWM, thank you very much for tuning in. Do stop by next time.